If you don't know me, I'm Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, filling in for Steve while he's been on vacation. He is back um, and sporting the beard. I've been telling him for a long time that it makes you look more distinguished and bring, you know, gives you the air of wisdom. He's finally catching on. So, so um, I've been filling in for Steve. We've been doing a short series on Psalm 23. Uh, and as most of you know, it's a uh, very popular psalm. We all go there for encouragement. Um, when we're struggling with things, it's a great place to lift us up. But we've been digging into that uh, in a deeper way, uh, talking about the journey that's portrayed there, the symbolic journey from the lowlands to the upper pastures, and uh, digging into God's qualities and David's experiences along with that. Um, just a, a slight recap uh, from last week. Uh, last week, we... We're, uh, we were going a little bit slow. We hit a, a verse and a half. This morning, just so you know, um, it's going to be crazy and out of control. We're actually doing two full verses today. Um, but last week we talked about a couple of different points, and you can see them up on the screen. We talked about the two different paths that there are uh, portrayed in, in Psalm 23. The paths of righteousness, um, the, the ways that we can choose to be trained by the boundaries that good choices bring, um, contrasted with the um, valley of the shadow of death and training through consequences and hardship. Uh, We talked about God using various tools to grow us, uh, the rod and the staff, um, and how um, each one of those symbolized two different methods of correction, painful correction, uh, but also merciful guidance. Um, And then we talked about that correction being a result of his love for us. It's because he cares deeply for us that he chooses to, to correct us. And um, one, of the, one of the craziest verses in the Bible where it talks about the rod and the staff comforting us um, and how God's correction, uh, God's, God growing us through uh, trials and troubles um, can actually be comforting. And then um, just a, as an overview for Psalms, we, we talked about the, the praise um, that David brings um, and always coming back to God's goodness, God's character, and how praise is the appropriate response for the ups and downs of the journey that we take. So as we dig into the text, um, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your presence here. Uh, I thank you that, that uh, when we gather, you're here with us. When we separate, you're here with us. Um, and that you walk through each and every step through the, the right choices, the, the, the paths of righteousness, through uh, the valleys of the shadow of death, uh, that you're with us through all of that. Um, and Lord, as, as I dig in here this morning, I just pray you would overshadow my words with your spirit, that, um, Lord, you would have your way with us, the way that you instruct us, correct us, comfort us, encourage us, um, would be apparent from your spirit and not from my words. Uh, Lord, thank you for your wisdom and for my weakness. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, before we dig in, for those of you that are structured people that might be a little nervous about the, uh, the uh, communion supplies being up front, this is not the first. Uh, it's not the first week of the month. We typically have communion on the first week of the month. We are doing communion later today as a, a kind of a response to uh, the psalm that we read through. So if you're freaking out a little bit, a little uncomfortable, it's going to be all right. Uh, But we'll get to that a little little bit later. So, Psalm 23. Uh, I've read this every time. We know it by heart, but uh, I'll read through it again here. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, we know that, that those verses very well. Um, if, if you've missed the last couple of weeks and want some of the context for what we're digging into today, feel free to go to our website. Uh, you, can, you can click on any of the last weeks and listen to the messages there. Um, sorry you have to listen to me, but I think that there's some good stuff in there too. Um, so I, I mentioned before, we're on this, we're on this journey. Um, we're talking about Psalm 23 as a journey from the lowlands where the shepherds would, would gather their, their flocks together and um, start out with the green pastures and the, the still waters near where they lived and then make this, this journey throughout the season up to the higher, uh, the higher plateaus, the higher plains. Um, and it would, it would help strengthen and grow their sheep in a way that, that just staying and fattening them in the, the lowlands uh, didn't bring. And um, we've been talking about that, the, the symbolism of, of God as shepherd. Uh, we've been talking about uh, David as um, God's chosen shepherd and his own experiences with sheep and how that played in as another level. And um, scholars look at, at Psalm 23 and they see uh, all the way up through verse 4 um, with that symbolism, and then there's a shift to this this idea of kingship or hospitality that's present in verses five and six. And I would argue, and I'll, I'll share a few things too, that that the shepherding symbol still holds true through those, um, but that that kingship and hospitality is another layer. And we'll dig into some of the the, the crazy cool layers that are here um, as we jump into the verses. And so. Um, we're going to dig right in because I've got a lot to get through this morning. So um, focusing on, on the first part of verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And the idea of, of preparing this table in terms of shepherding and, and in, in our language, um, a, a table um, is, is a nice flat surface, right? Um, and, and in terms of this journey that we're talking about taking up to the higher plateaus, the higher plains, uh, the, the shepherds would get up there and actually, um, for us, we call the, those high plateaus, those high plains, we call them, we actually call them tablelands. And so I think there's a, there's a link there um, in terms of what happens within, um, w- within the, the fields there, that the shepherd is um, cognizant of the dangers. And anywhere he goes, anywhere that he leads the sheep, um, he'll actually go through with his rod and his staff and beat the bushes. And this is where the term beat the bushes comes from. Is he'll, he'll shake out any potential threats or dangers or predators that may be lurking. Um, and I think particularly, Pam's not here, but particularly of snakes, right? Uh, you don't want the sheep getting, getting into the, the snakes that might be hiding in those places. Um, and so at least in our language, um, we can see that link to these, these high plateaus and, and uh, almost the kind of the, the, the next step on, on the journey that God is taking us to and how even in the midst of that, 
Uh, he protects us from, his, from our enemies. But there's more to it than that. Um, in, in Bible times, the idea of preparing a table before you in the presence of my enemies um, is almost unthinkable. Hospitality was a huge, huge deal. Um, if you were uh, a stranger and uh, went to a town that you didn't know, the people there were obligated to invite you into their home. Now, that sounds crazy. That's a good way to get axe murdered, right, um, in our culture. But for them, that was a vitally important, um, that hospitality was so uh, such a big deal. And the idea of inviting somebody into your home um, to sit down at a table that you've prepared where they're in danger is almost unthinkable. Um, this is a verse that would just jolt you because that is not done. Um, and yet, that's exactly what what the verse is talking about. Well, let me dig a little bit deeper into some of the verbiage. And this is mostly a pride point to tell you that I can actually read and understand some of the, the Hebrew words here. Um, I do try to... Uh, Pronounce, I go through a pronunciation so that I can sound smart, and then I butcher it in service. So I apologize to anybody that might know Hebrew. Um, but this Hebrew word, uh, shulchan, um, is actually the word used for table in this verse. And it, it's a very specific type of table. This is not your dining room table. This is not the table lands that I just draw, drew a link to, at least in our language. Um, this type of table is actually very specific it's a, it's a formal table. It's a table for a sacred purpose. So in the tabernacle, um, the table that it talks about in the tabernacle is a shulchan. Um, and this is very specific for sacred purpose. Um, and then just to, to dig a little be- deeper, because I, I love some of these crazy connections that you find in scripture. The root word for shulchan is salach which means to send forth. And so there's, there's a, a link between this sacred purpose and ascending forth uh, just within the words that are used there. And when they translated the, these passages in the Old Testament into Greek in the Septuagint, um, this word is actually um, translated into apostole, um, which is the root for apostle. So when we're talking about the apostles, we're literally talking about um, their purpose being to prepare a table for the hungry. Which, we've talked about this verse, but Matthew 4.4 4 comes to mind as I'm, as I'm listening to this and, and um, thinking about the idea of preparing a table and, and, and the hungry and bringing them in. Um, I'm reminded of Jesus' words when he's tempted in the desert. And he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And um, within the context that we talked about, this very verse in the first message, uh, at the opening of Psalm 23, um, this was taken from Deuteronomy 8, where God is expressing the purposes for the hardship that the Israelites went through. Um, And... I think, as a comfort for us. And so it's kind of a roundabout way, but um, it all comes back to our purpose and hardship being part of that purpose um, and God setting that table before us or before our enemies for us to partake in. Again, it's kind of crazy in in terms of what this would actually look like. Um, 
being in the presence of your enemies, that word is literally those that would bring grief. Um, I did this message series in a little bit different fashion, but I did it uh, in junior high a few years ago um, with our junior high group. And at the time, I did an illustration. I I did kind of want to put it together today, but um, I couldn't get uh, our boys to do it. But uh, I borrowed um, Matt Mitchell's, Steve's son, and and my son, Cooper. Um, They were in junior high at the time. And those guys are are absolute knuckleheads, if you know them. Um, Sorry, you guys had to deal with some of of that this weekend. Um, But I took them, and I I got them all ready for an illustration and set them up. And um, what I did was I set a table out, uh, just a small table, but I put a, a, a nice, actually a nice place setting on it. And I had a nice little uh, breakfast croissant there. And I uh, invited somebody to, to come on up and, and sit at this wonderfully prepared table. And uh, I picked uh, Kayla Peacock um, and asked her to come on up. And she is just the sweetest girl, uh, the most innocent and kind girl you've ever met. And she came and sat at that table, and as soon as she sat down, Cooper and Matt jumped out from behind uh, uh, the wall, and they both had pool noodles in their hand, and they just started beating her mercilessly. Um, Now, you may be able to conjure ideas of what it would be like to be in the presence of your enemies, but for the junior high, that was like, oh, man, yeah, I get that. I wanted to do that here, um, but probably with uh, Matt and Cooper hiding behind the drum cage with noodles, I don't know that I would get any takers. Um, But that's the picture of being in the presence of your enemies. Nobody in their right mind would be like, well, yeah, I'm going to go sit down and let those guys beat me senseless. That's just not going to happen unless I give you a pool pool noodle to maybe hit them back a little bit. Um, Another illustration. uh, when I was growing up, uh, I lived over on the Olympic Peninsula um, most of my life. But for a short six months stint, we had moved over to the Tri-Cities. And uh, we had some good close friends there. And um, my brother and I and uh, the two sons of this family would get together and do all kinds of crazy stuff, probably a lot of that pool noodle type stuff. Um, but one particular time, we were uh, on a fishing trip. And why our parents let us do this unsupervised, I'll never know. Uh, but we were ages, for the four of us, we were ages 14 to 16. So I was right in there, probably 15 years old. And uh, we went out to the Yakima River to a place that didn't, it wasn't actually a campground. It was just a place that you could go and fish um, in the river uh, right on the side there. And we set up camp and camped overnight there. And um, the Yakima River is, is a, a great slow-moving river, but it's not the, in the nicest of places uh, where we were. Um, again, I don't know why our parents let us do this, but uh, we had a great day of fishing. Uh, it was a nice late summer day, uh, catching bass and, and catfish and uh, nothing more relaxing than that. And at the end of the evening, we'd set up uh, three or four tents and um, climbed in. And uh, as, as most young people do, we were just out. And um, sometime in the middle of the night, uh, must have been probably two in the morning, um, the darkest time. Uh, we were woken up and, and shaken from our sleep by uh, one of my friends shouting, help, help, get out of here, go, go. And we were like, what in the world is happening? And, you know, as you stumble out of the tent and, and finally get your, your bearings, um, there were several, several men uh, fleeing from our campsite. Um, they had been ransacking our campsite and stealing our stuff. And it, it becomes very clear all of a sudden that, oh, we're just kids, 
in the middle of a situation that, man, we can't handle. And we don't have parents around to even help us out. So fortunately, we had our BB guns with us. Um, but at that point, you know, you've got the adrenaline going through your veins and everything, and you've, you've been rattled, and there's that fear feeling in your chest. And then what do you do? Climb back in your tent and go to sleep? Not a chance. Um, so we sat there, huddled for the rest of the night until we started seeing the light of day with our BB guns, just hoping and praying that these guys don't come back. Um, and it all worked out fine. We got our stuff back and all, but um, the, the image of that is stuck with me when we're talking about preparing a table in the presence of my enemies. Um, when it's just words to say, um, it sounds all nice. Oh, yeah, God's got so trust, you know, we, we can trust him so much that he'll prepare a table um, in the presence of our enemies and I can sit down at it. And that sounds all fine and good until you have experienced the reality of some of those things. And to me, with this verse, it just deepens God's calming presence and how even in the midst of all that, that we can trust him even when we're pursued. Um, and, and we see... We see situations like this in an entirely different light than God. I've talked about a, a lot about the, the perception of the shepherd versus the perception of the sheep. And when we see danger, we see those situations where we're in the midst of our enemies, um, we think of ourselves. We think of, how am I going to get out of this? How, how am I going to be safe? Um, but God looks at it a little bit different. And certainly he, he's concerned about our, our actual safety and welfare. But where we see danger and think of ourselves, God sees an opportunity for us to be fed and grow, even in the middle of a situation with our enemies. And David, in David's life, as he's writing this, undoubtedly, it, it's more than words. It's, it's his life that he lived, where he is pursued relentlessly by Saul. And, and he could have taken things into his own hands, but he didn't. Um, God knows and understands, sorry, David knows and understands God's character, his purpose, and his plan through the issues that he went through. And even with that, there's another layer to preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Um, David does an amazing thing here, and and actually begins to foreshadow Jesus, the plan that God has for our salvation. And, and as I think of preparing a table in the presence of my enemies, scripturally, the, the one that jumps out at me is the Last Supper. Jesus, on his final day, ate with his betrayer. He prayed with his betrayer and even still died for his betrayer. And I think about God's goodness and protection and how he would do that when um, I wouldn't even dream of, of that course of action. But David knows and understands God, God's character so much that even though it, it, it may not be that God revealed Jesus and his plan to him, there's, there's some deep connections here. 
And I refer us back to Psalm 22. I mentioned it in one of the earlier messages. Um, the psalm immediately preceding this, um, there's some amazing foreshadowings. And not even just foreshadowings. It's, it's, it's explicit. Psalm 22, verse 1, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 16, says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. And so somehow, in David's experience, he's seen the character of God so profoundly that he sees, the, the, he sees Christ portrayed in his own experiences and, and in his own pleading to God, um, even though they're separated by 500 years, David's foreshadowing Christ, his betrayal, his crucifixion, and even provides his very words on the cross. Like, that's amazing. We talk about being able to trust, a God, trust God in the middle of preparing, preparing a table for us, right with our enemies. I think a God that's got a plan that he rolls out 500 years in advance for our salvation probably has things well in hand. Second half of verse 5. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. In this, uh, the anointing, um, anointing literally means, the word for anointing means, you fatten my head with oil. So um, for Steve, who is the anointed of our church, he is God's anointed here, um, he literally is a fathead, (laughs) just so you know. I'm sure Pam has never used that against him. No, I I kid. Um, but in this, in this uh, fat is a luxury item, right? It, it means plenty. It's the, it's the best. It was part of the first fruits that people gave to God. Um, and so that anointing really signifies um, a ceremony for purpose um, that is set apart, that is different. Now, in terms of sheep and shepherds, um, anointing, actually has a very clear purpose. Um, sheep were anointed uh, in, in a little bit different way. Now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but sheep don't have hands. Um, so when bugs would come, um, and trust me, bugs love to climb into places like tight-knit wool, um, they would come and, and land on their eyes and lay their eggs in their fur and, and actually they could get their, their wool, their, their coat w- would be eaten away by bugs. Um, and so the shepherd would, in order to protect that commodity, in order to protect the sheep and the purpose for them, um, would douse their heads with oil. Um, sheep do have long tails. I don't know if you knew that or not. Um, sheep are born long-tailed. Uh, I, I had some pictures, but they were for a previous message and um, you can you can get the picture, but but they're different than like a horse's tail that a horse could whip and whip its tail and, and clear the the bugs and things from its eyes. It has no way of doing that in the same way. Um, and for a lot of for a lot of sheep, their their tails are docked in order to keep them clean. 
Um, and so this, this uh, anointing of them was incredibly important for the purpose that they were um, designed for. Um, in David's life, again, as he's writing this, you anoint my head with oil, I'm sure that he reflects back to his own anointing. And again, that ceremony for purpose, David was called out of the field to join his brothers who had been bypassed and Samuel was there and had gone down the line. Oh man, these guys are macho studs that are going to, surely this guy's the king. And God said, no, I I don't look at the outsides like you do. I look at the inside. And, And David came fresh out of the fields and God said, that's the guy. David wasn't anointed and immediately ascended to his kingship. He was anointed for God's purpose and there was that ceremony, but he was anointed as a shepherd. David no doubt phrased this remembering his own anointing by the hand of Samuel and recognized God's anointing being commissioned by God and that he was untouchable. And, and again, in his being pursued by Saul through a lot of his, his young adulthood, um, Saul recognized that David was anointed and was jealous of it and pursued David mercilessly. Um, And David had the means and the ability, as is shown in several illustrations, means and the ability of taking care of that problem. And yet he didn't, because Saul was also God's anointed. Saul had been anointed by God. And within the ancient world, and particularly within Israel, uh, anointing was something that was done for kings and priests and prophets, again, to show that they were set apart and that they had God's hand and purpose on them. But there's another layer to this um, that rears up. Um, Jesus comes back into the picture in the foreshadowing of him here. Um, Jesus' actual name, full name, would have been Jesus Bar-Joseph meaning Jesus, Joseph's son. Um, Jesus' name is not Jesus Christ. Christ is his title. I'm sure most of you knew that. Christ is the Greek version of the word Messiah, um, the, the chosen one, or most accurately, the anointed one. So even though kings and priests and prophets were anointed uh, for their purpose, Jesus comes as not one of the one of the anointed, but he is the anointed. He is the Messiah. He is the big A anointed one. And so when we read, you anoint my head with oil, there are a number of different layers there um, that end in a picture of Jesus. <coughs> my cup overflows. So often for uh, for shepherds, as they would lead their, their sheep up to the higher ground. Um, I don't know, another obvious fact, um, water flows downhill. I'm assuming we all knew that. I know that's one of the cardinal rules of plumbing. Um, but it tends to pool in the lower lands where it's much more plentiful. Well, up high, uh, it's much harder to find and get to. Um, and so where, where a shepherd knew where there was plentiful water, their, their water, their cup overflowing, um, that was a place to, that was remarkable and a place to stay. 
A shepherd could be at ease knowing he had an abundance nearby with which to provide for an extended stay. And again, as we look at the different layers of what, how, this, how this might roll out, I'm reminded of a couple of scriptures when we talk about our cup overflowing. Um, there's an overflowing abundance in a couple of different scriptures. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to read two of them to you. The first one is John 2, 1 through 11, and brings Jesus back into view yet again. John 2, 1 through 11 says this. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, and this is my own inflection here, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and didn't know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. To me, this is, this is the first thing that comes to mind when I hear my cup overflows. Um, and, and let me explain a little bit. Um, Cana, um, they've, they've tried to find the, the location for Cana archaeologically. And there's a couple different places that have very similar names nearby. They're all small, small towns. Um, and they don't know exactly which ones they are because there's not a ton of archaeological evidence uh, that would give insight into where exactly it was um, until recently. Uh, and I read, just read an article uh, a couple weeks ago that they have a pretty good idea where Cana is now. And uh, they did find some things, um, some early venerations of the site, etc., that, that made them believe that, okay, this is probably the real Cana. And it's even smaller a town than they originally thought. This is a tiny little town. So when they had the wedding here, they, I'm sure that they invited members of the community, but it was probably a, a you know, close family affair. Um, and um, even if they had invited the whole town, it was probably a fairly small wedding. And it said that there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Um, I like to geek out on some of these kind of things, so I did some calculations. That's 120 to 180 gallons of water that they were using. Now, throughout a, a Jewish wedding, um, there's, there's lots of need for ceremonial washing, so they have plenty of it on hand. Jesus turns this, fills it, and turns it completely to wine. 180 gallons of wine for this small-town wedding. I don't know if any of you have had weddings recently. I don't know, you know what the actual um, volume of wine that might have been consumed, but uh, that's a lot. <laughs> Again, just calculating for you know, uh, volumes for modern day, that equals 756 bottles of wine. That would be enough for a, a fair amount of consumption. That would be enough for 1,700 people. Um, 
and again, I said that this is a small town. That's more than double or triple the, the amount that they would possibly need or use at a wedding like this. Um, so why in the heck did Jesus make 180 gallons of wine for this wedding? And I think the answer is he provides more than we could ever need. And this is his first miracle as he started his ministry years. Um, And I think that this was incredibly profound in how he laid it out is you can't even use everything that I'm going to give you. That's amazing. I I don't think it was because he really wanted them to party down. Um, (laughs) But it did something else for them, too. For a young couple um, that couldn't even use what they'd been given. Enough for 1,700 people in this little town, they could sell that. That was a nest egg. That was something that would not just make for an awesome wedding, but would set them up for the future for years to come. Overflowing abundance. And then the other story that comes to mind when we talk about the cup overflowing um, is I'm reminded of uh, Luke 22 and it, uh, where it talks about the Lord's Supper. And let me read this. They came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, there's probably not much to this. I might be, be stretching here, but we were just talking about the first of Jesus' miracles, and there is an immediate connection in terms of a guy carrying a jar of water that they meet with. Now, maybe it's coincidence. There's probably guys on every street corner carrying jars of water, but um, I think that's a fantastic tie-in to Uh, and a reminder of the story we just read of uh, the wedding at Cana. But he says, When you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I'll not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We come back to this this table that has been set in the presence of his enemies, um, and he talks about this cup. He takes this cup. Now, if any of you are with us for the Seder service that we had last Easter, um, you'll remember that there were several different cups um, that that we had to drink. This is the third cup in the Seder service. And this third cup is the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing. For Jesus, he didn't drink of the cup. 
And an empty cup, back to that, that uh, hospitality model, an empty cup of blessing not only is not a blessing, it's a curse. And so for Jesus, that cup was empty. He didn't partake in that. Um, and later on, we read um, that he asks for God to take the cup from me, and that's the cup of God's wrath. So for Jesus, it's a cup of wrath, but for everyone else at the table, he brings it out as the cup of blessing. And we know that not much later, Jesus was crucified on the cross and died for the very sins of everybody at that table. Blessed beyond measure. Blessed in ways that they could not even understand at the time. And, and I just, I go back to the, the way that these stories were rolled out in scripture, bookending Jesus' ministry with the story of this cup of blessing and the overflowing abundance that God gives. It's amazing to me that David understood God so well that um, he could foreshadow Christ in this way. Whether he knew it or not, um, and that there's so many of these things present in Scripture. The ultimate provision of the shepherd is the gift poured out in the redemption of his sheep by the sacrifice of his son. We move on to verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And in terms of our language, goodness and mercy following me, I, I, when I'm following somebody, I kind of meander along. Um, and that's not the following that it's talking about. Um, the follow that it uses is actually relentless pursuit, like a hunter would. Goodness and mercy hunting us. No matter what we do, when we're part of God's flock, he'll pursue us with his love. And it says, all of my days... I'm reminded of a bumper sticker, and I know this is, uh, has shown up in, in various comedy routines and movies and things like that, but I, I saw it as a bumper sticker first. The bumper sticker said, I'm going to live forever. So far, so good. And we often, we often live our lives like we are going to live forever. Like, there's not going to be an end to this. It's just going to keep on going and going and going. God has appointed our time. And for the time that he's given us, we know that his goodness and mercy will pursue us until we're with him. And I also take note that it says goodness and mercy. And goodness and mercy, goodness can be present um, in the face of badness. Is that a word? Evil. Um, and mercy is one of those things that's withheld um, when there should be a consequence or a punishment. And so goodness and mercy exist within trial and struggle and tribulation and those things. It does not say, surely happiness and ease will follow me all the days of my life. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If a sheep were able to answer you and you asked it where its home was, its home is where the shepherd is, whether that's in the lush pasture lands by the still waters 
or up in the high plateaus or even in the dark valleys. Our home is wherever our shepherd is. And we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God looks at things different than we do. We've talked about this perception issue. And for us, we see time as this chunk. And we measure the, the depth of our struggle or trials or those things based on that little amount. And certainly as a proportion of that, the times that we go through that are tough are they're fairly, fairly substantial. But in terms of what God sees with time being measured against eternity, the, those struggles, those difficult times decrease significantly. There's just more there than we can see or acknowledge. So I mentioned before that um, I want to conclude with, um, with communion. Uh, I love being able to have a response to uh, the things that we've gone through in Scripture. And I want to call uh, Haley and Isaac up um, to help us with, uh, with this. Um, and there's two parts to doing communion today that uh, I want to emphasize. Um, we've talked from the very beginning, the Lord is my shepherd. And, and I, I emphasize the authority that the shepherd has when we call him Lord. The Lord is our shepherd. He's got the authority. He's got the power. He is that king that um, we can have awe and reverence and even intimidation for. And so there is that, the reverence of his lordship and our great shepherd. But there's another side that David continually brings out in all of his psalms, and that's celebration. And that no matter what trial he's going through, no matter what's happening, he recognizes God's goodness and celebrates him for it. And so we have both reverence and celebration. Celebration with the relationship that he's got with us. Celebration at his invitation to join him. Um, and, and not just join him at his home, but that he sacrificed deeply for us with the sacrifice of his son. And that we need to live with him. Those are things of celebration. So um, as we jump into communion this morning, I just want to emphasize those two things. And take it, take it where you're at. <coughs> but either in reverence or in celebration. So it doesn't need to be as solemn as, as we make it sometimes. But what, I, what, I, what I'd like you to do is, um, as we go about this, uh, let's use the center aisles. Uh, we're going to do something different. Instead of passing communion, we're going to go grab the elements. So come down one of the center aisles, and there's communion elements on either side, the bread and the wine. Uh, take your pieces, and head back around the outer edge to your seats, and then once everybody's seated, we'll... Um, We'll partake it together. So you can hang on to those things. And while you're going through that, uh, there's a couple questions I just wanted to throw out uh, if you want to ponder and reflect on. Is there anything that's keeping you from deeper trust and faith in him right now? So much of what we've talked about is based on trust and faith in our shepherd. And then the other question is, what sort of praise from you is he deserving of? What's he do? So we can ponder those as we collect our communion.